Think about this question for a second. What are Christians? So that's us, many of us, most of us. What are we known for outside of this building? Christians are known for coffee. All right. (laughs) You know, funny story, just uh, since Nick said that, I I was trying to figure out uh, how to appropriately, like, weave this story in, but that set me up. So thanks, Nick. So Nick and I were having coffee the other day, and just uh, I share this under two categories, God's providence, uh, and then also just you know, being ready to, to talk about what you believe. So we normally meet one day, but because of scheduling on my end, we changed it. So right, we made a change to suit our schedule. That's what we thought was happening. But meanwhile, as John Piper likes to say, God was doing 10,000 things, and we didn't know any of that. So we meet the next day, a little bit later, and we're having coffee, and we're talking about a book we're reading together about walking with Jesus and there's a woman next to me who's grading some papers I could see out of the corner of my eye. Every time she flipped you know, something down, it was the same paper. So I deduced she's some kind of an instructor. And uh, so uh, I also felt every now and then she was kind of you know, listening to the two of us have our conversation. That's fine. And so at one point, Nick asked a question about something in our chapter related to the doctrine of justification, uh, that, that part of our salvation where right, we, are, we are declared to be righteous by uh, God uh, and so on. So he starts to ask about that word and, and why it's translated that way in, in our English Bible. And before I engaged with Nick, the lady says, well, I can tell you the answer to that question. I teach religion at the JC. And so at this point, oh, me of little faith, um, I, that's our junior college here in town, I, I begin to roll my eyes inwardly. I didn't do it outwardly, yes, because I'm just expecting uh, an answer that that isn't true to to it. But she says, well, that word, you know, it doesn't mean justify like the way we use it in in our world, right? In our day, we talk about how we want to justify our existence or do something to justify, you know, something. It's a word that means someone else declaring someone righteous, and so my eyes are kind of big, and I said, yes, exactly. And, uh, and so we had, for about the next 15 minutes, a great conversation about the Greek language and about Bible translations, and Nick right away invited her to join us on Sunday, and, uh, and, and so that was great, and we swapped business cards, and I invited myself. Uh, if she ever wanted a pastor to sit on a panel in her religion class, I would love to do that, and uh, anyway, it was a great uh, thing. But back to your comment about coffee, she did make a funny joke, or at least, you know, in her mind it was funny. She said, yeah, we professors in the religion department, we have this little inside joke that, you know, be careful if you go to do grading papers in a coffee shop because you're bound to see Christians having Bible study. And uh, so anyway, uh, that's, that was true. So, well, other than coffee, and that was a good experience. Uh, and so, right, God's providence, he set that up and we were ready to have a discussion. And uh, anyway... Some, some people uh, in, in our world, outside of the church, uh, they might perceive that, that Christians are known for being hypocritical, or those Christians, they're overly concerned with politics, or Christians, they're angry all the time. Christians, they're, they're racist, or, or greedy, or bigoted, small-minded, um, anti-intellectual, 
anti-science. And, and, and a list like that could go on and on and on. And, and those, again, are caricatures, stereotypes, and maybe there are people who say that they're Christians who act in those ways, and maybe some of us sometimes act in those ways. Uh, and so we, you know, we want to be careful not to push back, but this just brings up the reputation of God's people. What is the reputation of the church? The early, early church, right? The, the first followers of Jesus, and we're going to get to a passage very familiar to many of you in, in a moment, but, but those first Christians uh, in, in the first century, um, they have had a pretty good reputation, at least for a period of time. Um, when you and I hear the name Pliny the Younger, around these parts, we tend to think of a beer that Russian River brews just a couple weeks a year, but he was actually a Roman governor, uh, and he was in the region of Bithynia, and around 112 AD, so just think about that date for a minute, 112. So we're talking 70, 80 years uh, after Jesus, okay? So there were people alive still who had seen the risen Christ and who had been followers, and, and, and I mean, we're talking right there, that, that generation, and then, of course, the next generation of followers, okay? That, that's uh, the time period I want you to think of. So Pliny the Younger, uh, this governor of Bithynia, he writes to the Roman emperor Trahan uh, for some advice on how to handle this, this group of people in his region, and he's speaking of Christians. Um, Christians were accused of treason against Rome because they, they wouldn't sacrifice and pay homage to Caesar as God. And so there's this accusation uh, that, that they are committing treason. So he has Pliny, uh, he was not a good person uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, he rounds up some Christians, some deaconesses. He, he has them interrogated. He tortures some of them. And he's trying to figure out what to make of them. And here's what is recorded um, about what he writes to uh, the Roman emperor about their reputation. So speaking of Christians, Pliny writes, they're in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it is light, and they sing an alternate verse to a, of a hymn to Christ as if to a God. Uh, they bind themselves by a, an oath not to do wicked deeds, never to commit fraud, theft, adultery, not to falsify their word, nor to deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it, after which it's their custom to separate and then to reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. That was the reputation that the church had uh, in those days. Worship, holiness, simplicity, life together. Are we known for those things today? Now again, you know, it's just a thought experiment and maybe we are in some circles. And of course the Christians, that, that, that favor and, and the favor we're going to read about in a moment from the book of Acts, it, it didn't last. It didn't last. Um, but, but that was something God's people were known for. And so I want that just to kind of be the question sort of in the background. Are we known for those sorts of things. So we are in this series called A Firm Foundation. This is the sixth and final message in, in this series. And today I want us to think about the church, uh, God's people, okay? Um, Titus chapter 2, uh, verse 14, you can see it on the screen. Speaking of Jesus, it says that he gave himself, 
we, we sang about this already. He gave himself for us to redeem us, to, to buy us back out of a slavery of sorts, a slavery to sin and death, and to redeem, to rescue, to pay back, buy back from all the lawlessness, and in that work to purify. And then look what, what Paul writes to Titus. He says, to purify for himself, right? Like we've just sung, we are here for you, not for ourselves. He did this to purify for himself a people, not individuals, a people. Jesus gave himself to redeem us, to purify for himself a people. That, that, that's a corporate idea. Yes, we are saved individually. It, it takes a personal faith to respond to the person and work of Jesus. Every individual needs to hear the, the good news, the gospel, and at some point individually respond. But all the individual Christians make up a people. A people. And so we, as part of that people, we exist for his own possession. And we are to be zealous for good works. Um, a people, corporate. As I mentioned, corporate just means body. It's the Latin for body, a soma. And so we've been thinking about uh, this, this idea of a firm foundation, starting the year off with a framework for transformation. And so we've been talking about this verse from Romans 8 as an intro each week. Those whom God foreknew, he predestined. And so all that stuff from Titus, the work of Jesus to redeem us for himself, is also so that we might be, and you see it in, in a bold text on the screen, conformed to the image of his son. So that idea of being conformed or transformed, uh, sanctified, making us more like Jesus. God is doing this in us. That's why we're still here. That's why when we were saved and we believed in Jesus, we weren't, you know, transferred from here to heaven, uh, you know, like Star Trek. What was that called, the device they used? Transport device, yeah, teleport, right? We, we can't just go stand on some pad and then, you know, end up in heaven. Um, God has us here and he's doing something in us for himself, for his glory. We exist for him. But, but we are being sanctified. We are being conformed to the image of his son. So we are thinking about this, this kind of concept for these weeks. And just to, to remind you for a minute, just to walk through uh, what, what we've been doing. We, we spent three Sundays with a focus on living on God's word. So Jesus said, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so we are to be people that, I remember the slide, uh, the idea of getting a grip on God's word. And so we need to uh, hear God's word. We need to read God's word. We need to study God's word. We need to memorize, meditate, and ultimately apply, do what God's word says, have a grip on God's word. Then on the second week of the year, the second message, um, we kind of asked the question, Why? So why live on God's word? Why have that grip on his word? And from 2 Timothy 3, we talked about the reason is because of what God's word is. It's his word. 
It's, it's from him uh, and what it does and ultimately what it produces. That, that's why we live on God's word. Then the third week, we watched a message from Tim Keller on the Bible and experience and kind of, again, continued to think through the authority of the Bible and its role in our life. So, so God's word and three messages, just trying to hit that. This, this book is to have a place, a big place, a prominent place in our life, living on it. It will transform us because this is how we get to God, specifically and especially. This is God's self-revelation. So if we want to know God, we, we go here. We can go out into creation, which is amazing, and behold his wonder, but, but we only get a degree, if you will, of, of him. We, we, we get his general revelation. We know that there's more to life than what we see, but, but we have to go to special revelation where God has revealed himself. So live on God's word. Three messages. And we try to come back to this over and over again as a church. Then two Sundays ago, uh, we, we have a new friend as a church, Jeremiah Porter. And so we gathered on Saturday, uh, those of us that were able, for a transforming prayer weekend. And then he preached out of Acts 4 uh, on prayer that God loves to answer. Learning to pray not just uh, for God to meet our needs, to, to seek his hand, but learning to pray to seek God's face. He is worthy. Yes, we're needy, but he's worthy. And let's pray prayers that are directed at his worth and then seek his, his hand. And especially for uh, him to draw people to Jesus, to save people, for us to, to be out on mission, ready to, to talk and, and so forth. And that led to last week then. If you were here, the message was called Pray First, Talk Second. And we were in Colossians 4, where the Apostle Paul admonishes us to, to pray and to be devoted to it, to continue in it with thanksgiving. And he says, pray for us that we may be able to make known the mystery of the gospel, to speak it clearly as we ought to. And so we need to pray toward that end. And, and you were challenged, if you were here, with this question, who's your number one? Who's, who's your one? Who, who is it in your life? If God was going to answer a prayer today, who is it that doesn't know Jesus yet? As far as you can tell, only God knows the heart, of course. But as far as you're aware, this person doesn't profess to follow Jesus. So who do you want God to draw to himself? John 6, 44, unless the father draws, Jesus said, no one can come to me. So, so we pray, God, draw. And, and so I asked you to identify your one. And we're going to keep talking about that in the weeks to come. We really need to pray. Maybe this is the year our ones, a bunch of us, will come to faith in Jesus. Wouldn't that be cool? And then we talk. We pray first, and then, yes, we, we need to have salty speech and words seasoned with grace. Uh, and, and so it was a, a message mostly about prayer, but then about evangelistic prayer and then sharing this, this good news. So uh, a framework for transformation. And there's so many more things we could talk about, but God's word being devoted to it, prayer, learning to see God's face, then seek his hand and praying for God to draw people. And then finally, that brings us today to the church where we started the message, this idea of what is the church. And, and again, we saw from Titus, uh, the, the church is a people. It's a, it's a corporate entity. And so for the few minutes that remain this morning, I want us to talk about the new community, 
uh, which is the church and, and what it looks like to live life together. So if you have a Bible, please turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And as you're flipping there, this is volume 2 of Dr. Luke's two-volume work. Uh, we, we learn elsewhere that he was a doctor, so we can call him Dr. Luke. And so he wrote what we call the Gospel According to Luke, where he recorded for us uh, this orderly account of the life and work of Jesus. He investigated, asked questions, sought eyewitnesses, and, and gives this orderly account. And then uh, the book of Luke ends with, with Jesus' death and, and burial and resurrection and ascension. And then the book of Acts picks up uh, volume two of Luke's account, now of the, the work of Jesus, but this time Jesus is up in heaven. He has ascended. He's at the right hand of the Father, and he is now going to send his Holy Spirit uh, on his people once and for all uh, to, to be the ushering in of the experience of the new covenant that Jesus brought. And so the book of Acts is the continuing work of Jesus, but through his Spirit sent amongst his people. And so like my Bible calls it the Acts of the Apostles, but it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit at work in the Apostles. It's the Acts of Jesus having sent his Spirit and, and so on. So it's volume two or part two of Luke giving this orderly account. Um, we don't have time to do a recap of chapter one, but we'll just uh, simply say uh, they are waiting. Jesus said, wait, uh, the Spirit is going to come. And so they are waiting. They are praying. They are devoted to prayer. They, they are seeking God's face. And then in Acts 2, this day of Pentecost shows up some 50 days after uh, Jesus' resurrection. And they are gathered in Jerusalem. And, and there's all sorts of people there from other regions. And uh, the Holy Spirit falls. And it's pretty miraculous. Uh, the apostles are speaking in languages that they had never studied. It's called tongues. And others from other parts are understanding, you know, and there's no interpreter. There's no, uh, like if you've ever gone on a mission trip where you speak, let's say, like if you go to Mexico in English and then the microphone, the brother or sister translates it into Spanish and then, you know, there's this delayed thing. No, as, as they're speaking, uh, probably Aramaic there in Jerusalem, uh, everyone is understanding them in, in their tongue and it's just astounding. Um, and so Peter preaches, and, and people are saved. 3,000, uh, it says at the end of uh, verse 41. And now I'll start reading at verse 42. And here's our text. Very familiar for many of you. Acts 2, verses 42 to 47. And they, and the they is the church, God's people. Not just individuals, but, but they. Hear that. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe, or, or fear even, came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing their proceeds to all as anybody had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, 
They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. And so you, as you read that and you think again what, what has happened and, and think back for a second to Pliny the Younger's outside comment, which of course is many years later now, but what, what the devoted Christians were doing, what they were devoted to, uh, they continued to do that and, and, and that was their reputation. And so this, this passage becomes a passage that many, many people love and there's, there's this idea of, of, of trying to be a church that looks like the first century church. And I think that's a good thing. I think we go to this passage and we can, we can learn a lot. But one thing we have to note right at the outset is that this text describes what the early Christians were doing, but there's no prescribing what they ought to do, right? This is descriptive, not prescriptive. Later on in the letters of the New Testament, especially, we have lots of prescriptions for what God's people are to do and not do, what it's to look like when they gather, uh, right? That's one of the reasons Paul writes letters to churches because they have questions or why he writes to guys like Titus or Timothy because they're put in place to get things in order and, and to appoint elders and deacons and, 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 and what it is to look like. There's prescriptives. But in Acts, Acts is the story. And so it's, it's descriptive. And so the trick becomes what, what, what that we're reading that's descriptive of God's people also has a prescriptive nature to it. And, and so I, I bring all that up because there are some, and I think incorrectly, for example, in this, this passage, uh, they want to see in here, uh, you know, some organic form of like a Christian socialism, you know, kind of thing, right? It's very communal living. And, and it, it, what it was to a degree, and it sounds like that, but, but they want to make that prescriptive for how it's supposed to be. But, but while I'm on that, it's interesting. Even in Acts, as we go a few chapters later, there's going to be people that own their own homes and sell things, and they bring those things. Um, and, and again, later on in the letters, uh, Paul's going to write to those who are rich, Im- implying they own. <laughs> you know, So um, this is not a prescriptive, we're all just supposed to buy a bunch of acreage in Idaho, or Lake County, I don't care, wherever, and, you know, live together. Now, if some people, you know, want to do that, I'm not necessarily saying you can't, but, right, it's not prescribing that. So we just need to note that right right from the, the get-go here. But life together, I hope you caught that. I mean, it's pretty clear in verse 42. Um, they're devoted, right? We've seen that word in Acts already related to prayer uh, in Acts 1 when they were Waiting and waiting in those days before Pentecost, they were devoted to prayer. And uh, Luke is going to tell us that the elder, or that the apostles, rather, in Acts six, wanted to be devoted to prayer and the word. So that that word, and we saw it last week in Colossians, be devoted, um, continue in prayer. So we, that word we should be comfortable with. And, and look, it says four things in particular. They were devoted to. The apostles' teaching. So uh, it's pretty clear uh, that that um, 
the, the place of studying. And so as the apostles taught what Jesus had taught them, uh, and as they began to have a regular part of their, their new life as the church, similar to what they had done in the synagogue where there was a reading from the scriptures. And so they, they did that. And there was this regular part of, of teaching, an element of teaching being a part of their gathering. And so that makes sense to us. And again, fast forward, that is prescribed for us all throughout the New Testament. Uh, make, make the public reading of scripture, Paul says, that, that that's something you're supposed to be devoted to. And uh, right? God's word is profitable for teaching. So that one's pretty, pretty clear to be devoted to uh, the word of God. The apostles' teaching is another way now we would understand ultimately to become the authoritative teaching through the scriptures of, of God's word. It also says that they were devoted to fellowship. So that's, that's what we're going to center on today. So just hang tight on that word for a minute. We'll come back to it. Then it says third, to the breaking of bread. So that, that meant a couple things initially. Um, it, it, it meant that when they gathered, they did remember uh, that, that meal that Jesus had instituted. They were devoted to, to this breaking of bread uh, where, as Jesus taught them, to, to, to remember this, this change from Old Covenant to New Covenant and, and so forth. Um, it also meant, though, that they, they, they shared a meal together. You're going to read that. If you read the first chapters of Acts, they gather and they, they share a meal together. And it seems like, again, these are the earliest days, right? There's no Apostle Paul yet. There's no, there's no letter from Paul to anybody or Peter to anybody. So they're figuring out things. And, and, and so they, they share meal. A part of that fellowship meal is remembering the, the, the Lord's Supper, as we call it. It is interesting, later in Acts, so some years go by as the book of Acts is unfolding, and later on, Paul's going to speak of, or Luke is going to speak of Paul gathering on the first day of the week to break bread. And so it seems that there's this, again, they, they live daily and they do this kind of all the time, but, but over time, as the saints scatter geographically, it seems that they get into a pattern of weekly gathering for these things. Uh, so again, my point is just, uh, we don't have here a prescription to every time you gather, you have to have a meal and you have to have communion. You, you can, and there are churches that celebrate the Lord's Supper every, every Sunday. We do it on the first Sunday. Today, we will do that in just a few minutes. But they, they were devoted to remembering the Lord's Supper and, and sharing a meal together. So, and, and we have a nacho Sunday in two weeks because we think that's a good thing too. Uh, it says also then in verse 42, uh, the prayers. So again, we've been talking about that. They, they were devoted to it. Praying together was a big deal. And so we just need to hear this. And I know this is kind of something that it seems like writers and pastors harp on all the time, right? The individualistic Western American society, but, but it's true. We, we think first about our personal walk with Jesus, and that was so different to the first followers, partly because of just their world. They didn't think as individuals as much. They were part of a family, and that family was part of an extended family, and they were part of a tribe, and they lived here, right? And everything was a people. They're their people. And so 
their devotion to God's word, their devotion to um, the fellowship, which we'll come to in a second now, uh, to, to the breaking of bread, to prayers. It wasn't just like, am I during the week in my time alone with God doing what I'm supposed to do? They, they thought more of, are, are we doing these things as we gather and when we gather? So it's just important to, to note that. The fellowship, though, that's, that's the heart of, of what I want us to see in this. Because there you have in verse 42, Luke, tell us, Luke tells us they're devoted to the, the fellowship. That's the word you've heard it. The Greek word is koinonia. And so that, that's a word that sometimes gets used for different things. Um, but but it's, it's the fellowship, the, 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 the connection that they have together. They were devoted to to this relationship and a relationship that they had because of their fellowship, their koinonia with God, because they were connected to God by Christ, what he had done, they were connected together and they were devoted to it. It was so much more than five minutes after a service with a piece of cake and a cup of coffee, although that's good and fine too. It was all about, as I have on the screen, life together. For them to be devoted to the fellowship, the koinonia, basically what, what I read, Luke is, is spelling out. So look back again as I read at verse 44. And all who believed were together. They had all things in common. They were selling possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That's life together. Even if it was a communal context, right? The, the point is they, they met needs. If there were needs, they, they met them. They, they were doing life together. They were aware when one sister had a need physically. They were aware of this brother and his family had, had this kind of a need. And so if it meant I sell something so that I can give extra to meet this need, I'll do it. Because the fellowship, life together, right? That's, that's what they were doing. There was this generosity. I mean, that's the point. They were generous with their time, with their resources. Some of you are familiar with, um, in, in Philippians, the Apostle Paul says that in chapter 2, we are to look to the interests of others, not to our own interests. And then he says, because Jesus himself didn't consider his needs, but, but left heaven, emptied himself of his prerogative of deity and came, came as a servant, came as a human, right? He, he was just, he was generous, Paul's saying. And, and so you, you can understand, right? This was the model. If God would lavish himself on us, well, then that's how we're going to treat one another. Again, it's easy for us to affirm and go, yeah, 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 okay, we, we understand this description of, of this church. And it is descriptive, it's not prescriptive, but again, in the descriptions, we, we have to kind of go, well, what does that mean then? If, if we aren't being told to live this way right there, but are we being told to live in these kinds of ways? And church, I believe we are. 
So let me just list off for you a number of what are called the one another passages, right? So I said, this is biography, it's descriptive, but later in the letters, you'll get lots of prescriptive teaching. So just listen. I don't have it on the screen, but I'll say the reference and then I'll read it. So Jesus said in John 13, 34, a, excuse me, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Or Romans 12, 5, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters, Romans 12, 10. Outdo one another in showing honor, Romans 12.10. Instruct one another, Romans 15.14. The members would have the same concern for each other, or or each member is to have the same concern for each other, 1 Corinthians 12.25. Serve one another through love, Galatians 5.13. Carry one another's burdens, Galatians 6.2. Be patient and bear with one another in love, Ephesians 4.2. Be kind and compassionate to one another, Ephesians 4.32. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, Ephesians 5.21. Do not lie to one another, Colossians 3.9. Encourage one another, 1 Thessalonians 4.18. Pursue what is good for one another, 1 Thessalonians 5.15. Let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, Hebrews 10, 24. And I'm going to stop there. You hear it, right? What they were doing, being devoted to the fellowship and selling things and meeting needs, this is how then we are to to live. It's there. So now I'm going to read a quote from commentator Tony Merida. He's actually a pastor and... um, but, but he writes this, and this is just a, a paragraph of questions. So I just want you to hear this, and it might be convicting. It was for me. So this is, ap- this is the application. So just, just hear this paragraph. Do you have fellowship with God through Jesus? Are you working at building deep relationships with others in the church? Could it be that you love the idea of community more than the actual people in your church? Are you complaining about lack of community rather than asserting yourself to serve and love others in your congregation? Do you show up to events and meetings faithfully? Do you arrive early to interact with people on Sunday? Or are you a ninja slipping in late and excusing yourself before the service ends? Are you involved in others' lives throughout the week? Are you sensitive to the needs of your brothers and sisters? Are you grateful for them? Have you told them about what they mean to you? I think he had me at the first question, right? (laughs) See, if we're going to say, yeah, yeah, we love this early church, the things they were devoted to, they were devoted to life together. This new community of God's people, they were involved in each other's lives and it, it took devotion. It took being committed to. But that's what God has called us to. 
That's what God has called us to. Just read again here in the text. Day by day, verse 46, attending the temple together, breaking bread in homes. They received food with glad and generous hearts. And again, together, praising God, having favor with all the people. And again, yes, this is, this is the beginnings of the church, but, but there it is. And the Lord added to their number day by day. So that's, again, that's not some promise. If the church lives this way, you know, all these people are going to come to faith. But, but God was doing something through this new community as they were doing life together. So in this passage, church, that we've, we've heard and we know, Dr. Luke, he gives us this model, not, not of how to do church as much as it's what, what the priorities should be in the church. And one of those is life together. So that's, that's the challenge, right? To, to build, uh, to, to have a, a life that's putting itself in, in a place to grow spiritually, this framework um, for transformation. A part of the way God makes us more like Jesus is with one another. Because we need other people to encourage us and we need other people to help us and we need other people to challenge us and we need to encourage other people and help other people and challenge other people and walk alongside people. This is life, and this is life in God, and it's life together, not just by ourselves, but together. I'm going to invite Sherry and Dan uh, to come back, and, uh, and then Joy and Joe uh, to come up. We're going to pass the elements in a minute and break bread together as we do it the way we do it here, uh, this meal. This isn't just an individual meal uh, where you just take communion when you're ready. Uh, what will happen, what our tradition is uh, lately, uh, the elements will come, and again, we're, we're, we're done with rip and sips, the little individual deals. Um, so they'll come in a minute and uh, hold the tray, and you can just grab your piece of bread. Uh, we're, we're small enough that uh, they'll just kind of work their way and let, let you take yours, but then you hold it, okay, and it's a time to pray. It's a time to reflect. Uh, and, and actually, um, we're going we're to sing a song through, through it. So you'll sing as, as the elements are passed. And then when everybody has the bread, I'll, I'll direct us and we'll eat together. And then the same will happen. And when everybody has the cup, uh, we, will, we will drink together. And so it's, it's a meal we share as, as a church family. So again, the teaching comes from that the prescriptive teaching comes from the Word of God. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians that he received from the Lord what he delivered, that the Lord on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he, he broke that bread, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Jesus, you, you said in John 7 that if we thirst, we are to come to you and to drink. And if we believe in you, as the scriptures say, out of our heart will flow rivers of living water. 
And so we want that. We want to experience your presence in that way. And I pray even today with just a simple reminder that, that this is to be done together, that we would experience that. And I pray in this 2023, we that call ourselves Soma would grow in life together and in, in being a part of, of one another's life, being devoted to the fellowship. We thank you, Jesus, that you came and brought the new covenant, the bread, the, the cup, which we're about to drink. In Jesus' name.